judging sin of people everywhere. He not only judges the sin of the nations around Israel, he also points out and judges the sin of his own people, of the people of Israel themselves. The theme of sin runs through these chapters as we see the prophet calling out sins of individuals and nations. He's specific about the sins which God hates and which he's judging. In addition to judgment, these chapters include verses where the Lord holds out promise of salvation to both his people and also to the nations. Look out for these as it's important to spot them and to understand their significance as we work through the book of Isaiah. Another major theme is servanthood. The way that God's people serve him is very carefully examined. The king of Judah, the leader of the southern kingdom, is particularly under the microscope in these first 39 chapters. Ahaz, you'll probably recall, was under the microscope in chapters 1 to 12. And in chapters 34 to 39 here, it's Hezekiah, his successor, his son and successor. I'll be getting into Hezekiah more uh, very shortly. And then the other theme running through Isaiah is God's Messiah, his anointed king. It's a very major theme, particularly in the latter chapters. Okay, so much for the major themes. Let me remind you about the overall structure of the book. I've broken it down just for ease of our reference to five sections. Firstly, the introduction, where the problem of servanthood is outlined. That's chapters 1 to 5. Second section is Isaiah's commission, which is in chapter 6. And then the third section, which is the one we're in tonight, is a major section on trust, the basis of servanthood. And trust really runs right through that whole section here. The fourth section, which David and Mike are going to be grappling with in future talks in this series, is on grace, motive and means of servanthood. And that covers chapters 40 to 55. And the final piece of Isaiah here is righteousness, is the theme, the character of servanthood. And that's chapters 56 through to the end, chapter 66. Uh, one more reminder, if I may, is the, the historical background, which is particularly important for tonight's section. Um, it's important to understand as we read about the various different individuals and nations what the, the background is. So here's a map of the ancient Near East around the time of Isaiah. Um, just to get your bearings, you'll see Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, is about there, if you see the red spot. And then um, the capital of uh, well, Samaria is just to the north here. And then further north, you've got Aram. And uh, that capital city of Aram is Damascus, down there. And finally, in, further to the north, in the pink area, so right up here, You've got Assyria and the capital Nineveh. Uh, the situation at around the time of our passage today, about 700 BC, is that Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and he's under the kosh. He's under pressure. The Assyrians are attacking, and everything looks to be going wrong. If you look at that big green crescent, the Assyrians have taken out that area. That's all their territory, and they're pressing down to the south towards where you see Jerusalem is there. Um, let's work through then these six chapters at a very high level. Uh, chapter 34 and 35 are a pair. Chapter 34 
is a poem which shows exactly what happens when we rely on the nations and others for security. And it's got language of the desert, desolation, and uncleanness. Chapter 35 shows what happens when we rely on the Lord our God for redemption, provision, and safety. And the contrast between these two chapters is really stark. Anger, judgment, destruction, and uncleanness in chapter 34 on the one hand, contrast with joy, splendor, peace, salvation, plenty, wholeness, and holiness. Matt read a section from that, that at the beginning of our service, the holiness, the way of holiness in chapter uh, in that, in that chapter 35 is, is really amazing, holy. So there's, that two, there's, there's two contrasts there, the anger and the judgment against the wholeness and the holiness. And then in uh, chapter 36 and 37, we have this story of King Hezekiah's response to this threat from Assyria and its king Sennacherib. Um, they show us Assyria, uh, Hezekiah's willingness to trust the Lord God in the face of a very severe threat. And then chapters 38 and 39 tell us what happened after the threat had passed and reveal Hezekiah's fallibility and his mortality. Okay, let's move on. Uh, this part of Isaiah brings to the fore this whole issue of trust, as I mentioned earlier. It's a major theme which runs through Isaiah. And the question which Isaiah is asking is, will the people trust God and him alone, or will they instead rely on others? get my pages to separate. Uh, as I mentioned briefly, chapters 34 and 35 just underline the contrast between these situations. Those who trust the nations, that is to say they look to human allies, politics, armies, they're going to face the anger of the Lord. But those who trust the Lord, um, that is to say they rely on God for protection, repent of their sins, and seek God's favor, and obey his laws. These are the people God will bless and save. So let's look at Hezekiah in a bit of detail and at his situation. Assyria was the superpower at the time of the action in this passage, around 700 BC. They'd swept across, as I mentioned, much of the ancient Near East, got down to Judah. They took out all of the fortified cities in Judah comprehensively. There were about 30 fortified cities, all conquered, and the army was invincible. Lachish was the second largest fortified city. It, it was about to fall. Jerusalem is alone. It's facing the Assyrian onslaught. Let me just get to the right place here. Okay, Jerusalem is alone facing this Assyrian onslaught. And the Assyrian advanced troops show up at Jerusalem, and the field commander comes to meet with the officials, the three top cabinet members of Hezekiah. Terms are clear. Immediate surrender, or we attack, and we besiege Jerusalem. He'd actually practiced a little speech, even in Hebrew, and so when there were people around listening to the speech, he wasn't speaking in a language they didn't understand. Yeah. All the big ears were flapping on the, on the wall as, as they were, the, the, field, the uh, field commander gave his speech. I was looking for parallels in history to help us try and understand maybe what this situation felt like a bit. And so does anybody know where this is? Any ideas? 
No, more puzzled. It's the palace of the Sultan of Zanzibar. And the situation on the 25th of August, 1896, was that the previous sultan died, and his eldest son took over the palace and declared himself the new ruler. The British were not impressed with this. They did not agree with this. So they issued an ultimatum at 8 o'clock in the morning on the 27th of August, instructing Sultan Khalid to step down within the hour or else. At 9 o'clock, the British opened fire, and this is what the palace looked like after they had a go at it. Ceasefire was declared at 9.45 a.m. that same day. Shortest war in history, 45 minutes. The person the British approved became sultan. Peace was restored. The situation was one of overwhelming force. The British had uh, these ships with guns in the middle of the harbor. They could just do this in 45 minutes. They could take him out. There was nothing Khalid could do except flee. That's the kind of situation that Hezekiah and the people of Judah are facing. So let's take a look at his situation here. Here's the field commander's speech, possible Hebrew, as I mentioned, and his main points are, rebellion is futile. Egypt will not assist. They're unreliable. They're like a splintered reed. They're going to break if you try and lean on them and maybe even injure you, go through your hand as you try and lean on this reed. That's what's going on. You're depending on God, but isn't he the one whose high places Hezekiah removed? That God's going to be upset with you, so you're depending on someone who's upset with you. What's going on? Then there's the show of strength. Assyrians have overwhelming strength. 2,000 horses, and the Judahites can't even provide riders for those, let alone any horses themselves, and warriors for a contingent of that size. And then there's the track record of the Assyrians, they have an amazing track record. Not one of the peoples on that way down that green crescent down towards Jerusalem, not one was, has been able to stop their progress. They've got crack troops with a clear military advantage. And finally, his, the field commander says, the Lord himself has told Assyria to destroy Judah. So even the Lord God of the Israelites is on the side of the Assyrians as they're, they're threatening to destroy Jerusalem. Doesn't sound very good, does it? It sounds pretty rough. I, I've, I've got pictures here, and it's, it's a bit like maybe Assyria showing up in one of these, and Hezekiah has one of those. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not great, is it? It's really looking quite difficult. Um, okay, so moving on. So it's a grim situation, there's no way out. So how does Hezekiah respond? What's his response? The second uh, reading that Anne uh, shared with us is, shows us what happens uh, when, when, uh, how Hezekiah responds. So we read that he takes the time to read Sennacherib's letter. He then goes to the temple of the Lord. He spreads this letter out before the Lord, and he prays. So how does he pray? What is his prayer? He calls on the Lord Almighty. He states that the Lord is God over all the kingdoms on earth. He states that the Lord is the creator of all of heaven and all of earth. And so he asks to be heard as he brings Sennacherib's words before the Lord. What else? He notes that Sennacherib is trying to ridicule the living God. This petty king of, okay, a big kingdom, but he's trying to ridicule the God who created the whole heaven and the whole earth. 
Syrians have is the facts. He's realistic. And the facts are that these conquests have, have, have happened. The Assyrians have made amazing progress to date. But he also puts a correct perspective on the conquests. That is to say, the previous conquests are all of people who do not worship the living God. They worship idols that are made of wood or stone fashioned by human hands. And then he asks the Lord to deliver the people of, of Judah. And the one final point is that it's, and it's a good and valid reason for the Lord God to act. And that is so that all the kingdoms on earth may know that the Lord God alone is God. It's all very dramatic stuff in the face of overwhelming odds and the risk of destruction from the Assyrian superpower. So how does the Lord answer Hezekiah? It's all there in the rest of chapter 37. Please do read it. It's a ripping yarn if you haven't read through chapters 37 and 38 and 39. It's a, an amazing story. In brief, um, Sennacherib's military success was ordained by the Lord long ago, is the, is the, comes the answer from Isaiah. And the Lord is fully aware of Sennacherib's arrogance and his ignorance, uh, his insolence, beg your pardon. And Sennacherib isn't even going to get a, to start a siege, let alone enter Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord then goes uh, out and puts to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. Can you imagine the bodies, 185,000 dead in one night? In response to this, quite naturally, Sennacherib breaks camp and withdraws. And then in the last two or three verses of, of the, uh, the chapter there, ultimately Sennacherib is assassinated by two of his sons back in Nineveh. Game over for Sennacherib. What a fantastic triumph for Hezekiah to have the Lord God respond to his prayer in this way and to be able to see off the superpower of his day inflicting catastrophic losses on him. Sounds good, you think, but unfortunately the story doesn't end there. The rest of this section, chapters 38 and 39, um, deal with Hezekiah's mortality and his fallibility. What happens next is that Hezekiah falls sick and is told by Isaiah to prepare for his death. He prays for an extension, and the Lord grants him 15 years more life, which is a great result for him personally, but a stay of execution rather than, than anything else. And then Hezekiah then shows his fallibility by welcoming envoys from Babylon, and he shows off and he shows them everything, very unwise. And then Isaiah holds him to account for this foolishness and advises him that the Babylonians will come and conquer Judah and his people will be exiled. And so in the, in the face of that news, uh, Hezekiah responds with a very short-term outlook. And he just welcomes the news that the exile and conquest won't happen until after he's gone. So I'll be gone, not a problem. It's fine to, to have an exile to Babylon. Um, peace in our time kind of comes to mind, maybe. Um, okay. So let's draw some conclusions from this passage. Uh, here are what I'd like to offer as some of the main conclusions. We all need rescue. Chapter 35 underlines that. Relying on human assistance and earthly powers is futile. The Lord is the only one we can trust to rescue us and to do so definitively. Ahaz failed. He went after human intervention and it failed him disastrously. That's in chapters 1 to 12. 
Hezekiah trusted initially, and it looked good for a while, but he couldn't rescue as he made mistakes, and ultimately he died and left disaster of exile to Babylon looming for the Israelite and for the Judahite people. So what is it, or who is it, we need that we ultimately need to rescue us? Well, let me offer this. We need the Lord's rescuer, the person who's mentioned in much of Isaiah, who's going to take care of rescuing us, defi- rescuing us definitively once and for all. This person will bring the Lord's eternal redemption, not just stave off disaster, put it off for a year or two or five years or 15 years. This person is going to rescue us forever, for good, eternal. But that, of course, begs the question, who is this person? Who is going to do this? And also, how? How is the Lord going to achieve this rescue? So as I was grappling with these questions, I thought it'd be good to let Scripture answer Scripture. Uh, So uh, we've been receiving hints throughout Isaiah chapter 1 to chapter 39 uh, about the hope which the Lord is holding out for his people, the remnant. So what I did was I looked through these hints, and I've drawn up a short list of the signs of hope which we've come across in Isaiah to date. There are quite a few but I've just picked out the ones which received the highest number of mentions. And these are all promises of the Lord set out in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah as the Lord, through Isaiah's prophecy, reveals his future plan to us. So here they are. Victory over enemies, and in particular, defeat of death itself. Secondly, joy and rejoicing, ample provision of the needs of God's people. There's a picture of a banquet in Isaiah 25. He's going to rescue us and give us joy and rejoicing and ample provision. Thirdly, God himself is going to be our salvation. He will be our salvation. Fourthly, God's anger against us will be turned away. His his anger against our sinfulness and our mistakes is going to be turned away by this person. Fifthly, the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Everywhere, every nook and cranny is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Sixthly, all the nations will join God's people. And seventhly, it's going to be eternal peace for all God's people everywhere. So this is the job description, if you like, of of the Messiah, the person who's going to rescue us. Culled, picked out from the various verses in chapters 1 to 39 of, of Isaiah. It's a breathtaking list, isn't it? It's amazing and stunning promises to look forward to. I don't know about you, as I read these, they're, they're great. So let's do some benchmarking. Let's use this list of promises to benchmark Hezekiah. Okay, is he the rescuer who God promised? After all, he's just won this famous victory that the, 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 uh, the P-shooter has taken out the, the armored vehicle uh, so is he the rescuer? Is he the one who's, who's going to rescue us? Let's see how he does against that list that I put up earlier, against God's amazing promises to his people. So he's just won a great victory over Sennacherib, but then this Babylon is coming. As we heard in, 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 in when he showed those Babylonian envoys, then Isaiah predicted that Babylon would come. He's not going to be able to rescue there, is he? 
Secondly, joy and rejoicing. Well, of course, there would have been immediate joy and rejoicing as the Assyrian Empire withdrew and, uh, and there was victory. But what next after that? How long will that joy and rejoicing last for? Thirdly, that's salvation from Assyria. But again, what about Babylon? Babylon is looming. It's coming. Fourthly, God's anger has been turned away for the moment, for the while. But again, there's more judgment coming for the Israelites after Hezekiah. Next up, we've got word going out clearly uh, to God's people. Now, the word will clearly have gone out after Judah's stunning victory. The word would have gone out to the surrounding peoples that 185,000 of the Assyrian troops were slaughtered in one night. But the memory is going to fade, isn't it? It doesn't look like the start of the whole world knowing about the Lord God. Brief report, maybe, but in six months' time, memory. And what about mass movement of turning the nations to come to Judah to worship the Lord God? Maybe a few people would have come to, with a bit of curiosity after Hezekiah's victory, but not a mass movement of the knowledge of the Lord going out to all nations. And what about peace? Temporary peace, perhaps? A few years? Bought a few years of peace as, as the Assyrians withdraw? but there's more war coming, there's more aggression coming. Any peace is likely to be just temporary, conflict and war will come. And that eternal peace is certainly not there. And please don't get me wrong, while we need to be positive about Hezekiah's achievements and his trust and faithfulness in the Lord God Almighty, this is nothing like the fulfillment of all of the promises which the Lord God has made through the prophecies which Isaiah has shared with us. Okay, let's do one more benchmarking exercise. This side of the coming of the Lord Jesus, we've got the privilege of being able to look at him and to see how he measures up. So I'm just going to run through the same thing, but this time with the Lord Jesus. So let's benchmark the Lord Jesus against those promises in Isaiah. Here we go. Victory over our enemies and the defeat of death itself is something that Jesus accomplished. He did it. Defeated sin by giving himself up to die for us. He has the power to forgive sin, as he demonstrated many times in the gospel stories. Not only that, he conquered death itself, as he showed by rising himself to new life. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus has defeated death itself. Second up is joy and rejoicing. We can be joyful and rejoice in Christ. We can do that right now, rejoicing in his victory and the salvation which he's given those who put their faith and trust in him. In future, there'll be even more joy and rejoicing for God's redeemed people in heaven. Next, salvation. God himself, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God, and he is our salvation. So Jesus, again, has accomplished this. Jesus has saved us once and for all by his death on the cross. Next is anger. God's anger has been turned away from us. The punishment for our sin has been perfectly and completely laid on Jesus through his death. So we enjoy relationship with God through our faith in Jesus. Next up, increasingly the earth is being filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The gospel has gone out to pretty much every nation on the planet. There are Bibles and New Testaments in most languages. There are a few small people groups that haven't got them. But the gospel is growing out everywhere. There are Christians from every nation across the world. And peace. 
Peace is in the hearts and minds of everyone who trusts in Jesus. And whilst in this world there will still be war and conflict temporarily, Jesus has announced this amazing eternal peace that we will enjoy between God and man. Ultimately, that's going to result in permanent peace when the Lord returns. So what a contrast. If Ahaz failed completely, he didn't even start to trust God. Hezekiah brought temporary relief. There was a bit of trust and there was a famous victory and there was a bit of pushing out of the timing. But there, Hezekiah was definitely a shadow of the reality to come. The Lord Jesus is the real deal. He is the rescuer. He comes in the power of the Lord to achieve all those amazing prophecies which Isaiah has given us. So let me just underline this sure and certain hope which we have by sharing a passage from Hebrews chapter 7. So this is chapter 7 of Hebrews. Let me just read. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great book of Isaiah, particularly for your promise of a rescuer who will deal comprehensively, completely, and permanently with the problems of our sin and the shroud, which is death. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly meets our needs in every respect. Thank you that he has swallowed up death forever through his sacrifice of himself on the cross. Thank you for his glorious resurrection, which bears witness to this. Give us increasing confidence in him, day by day, we pray. We ask this for the honor and glory of Jesus' name. Amen. He is there to lift 
me, heal me and forgive me, gives me strength to stand again, stronger than I was before. So with every breath that I am given, I will sing salvation song, and I'll join Giving praise to Christ alone. All the claims of Satan's curse, lifted through his offering, satisfied through suffering, all the blessings he deserves, poured on my unworthy soul. Salvation song, and I'll join.